Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforests.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley. But this autumn is stressing the importance of being a good steward on the trail, finding ways to avoid contributing to crowding, and staying safe on public lands. We'll talk about how just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department is asking Oregonians to unlock their creativity with poetry, drawings, photos, and songs inspired by the state's most beautiful places. You can submit your work as part of the Oregon State Parks Centennial Creative Challenge. It's part of the celebrations honoring 100 years of state parks in Oregon. And you can find out more at stateparks.oregon.gov. All right, in today's episode, we're talking about the biggest news from the Oregon summer of 2022. We'll talk about wildfires, permits, wilderness reopenings, crowds, and a whole lot more. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. got what's become an annual tradition and that's looking back at the summer and the recreation season to spotlight some of the biggest stories and trends. I did this the last two years and kind of surprisingly a lot of people are interested so we're bringing it back for year three. That means this podcast will be a little bit on the newsy side but that's okay because we've also got some interesting travel stuff including the best hikes to see wildfire scars. So we're going to hit on the biggest stories talk about some hikes, and then we'll end with a sad but odd story about a hike, a plane crash, and a reality television star. Plus, we'll hit on a few issues to keep an eye on in the coming years. So let's get into it. All right, we're going to start off with wildfires. Uh, which have turned into just about the biggest news item for Oregon summers on a pretty regular basis now. This wasn't always the case, by the way. I've covered Oregon's outdoors for 15 years now, and it's really only been since 2017 that wildfires have been so front of mind for just about everyone in Oregon. So focusing on this year, I think the best way to sum it up would be that this was a quiet fire season by modern standards, but it was still very impactful. So by the numbers, Oregon burned about 442,000 acres this fire season. Now that's quite a bit less than the last two years, and that's less than the average per year for this decade. Since 2012, we've been seeing north of 700,000 acres burn per year, so this year was under that. We also had less days with poor air quality compared to recent years, and less homes burned down. So overall, less fire, less smoke. That said, wildfires still had a big impact, especially in the late summer and early autumn. So in early September, a strong east wind event brought power shutoffs to 50,000 homes and businesses. 
The hot and dry winds also helped spark and spread wildfires in two urban areas that don't normally see fires like this. And that took place in South Salem and Estacada. Those fires brought evacuations of hundreds of people. But this is a growing fear, this fear that urban wildfires are going to become more prevalent, especially in forested areas in the Willamette Valley cities. So places like Forest Park in Portland, Minto Brown Park in Salem, and any number of other places. You know, as we see hotter and drier summers, those places are just more ripe for fires. And when an east wind comes through, you know, anything can happen in a way that we didn't expect it to previously. Power shutoffs are also going to become more common when fire danger gets high. It's impossible to say what frequency this is going to happen, but this was something that almost never happened in the past, and we can definitely expect it to happen again in the future. Anyway, so along with those urban wildfires, the east winds also caused fires already on the landscape, like the Cedar Creek fire near Oak Ridge, to explode to a much larger size than had been expected and to have a pretty big impact through autumn. The Cedar Creek fire was definitely the fire of the summer. It burned 127,000 acres. It cost a whopping $132 million to manage. And when you looked at the poor air quality days this year, it was almost entirely due to Cedar Creek. Now, again, days with poor air quality were down, but one area that bucked that trend big time was Oak Ridge, which had 37 days with air quality classified as unhealthy for sensitive groups meaning that the air quality could actually impact health in a negative way. Eugene had eight days like that, just being kind of a pipeline of smoke from the Cedar Creek fire, while Salem and Portland both had three days of this poor air quality, which isn't bad by recent standards, but it did have an impact, you know, canceling some high school sports and stuff like that. A funny thing about the Cedar Creek fire is that when it started during a lightning burst, it really stayed small and mellow for a long time. Like, we did stories about Waldo Lake being kept open even while the fire was right there. And it was just kind of this fire that you want in a wilderness area. It was burning at a low intensity that helps restore forest health. All the things were going well until things went sideways with those east winds that blew up and almost got to Oak Ridge. And that's been a big story recently. All the science tells us that we need more fire in the Cascades, especially but with those east wind events and hotter and drier conditions, that makes letting fires burn at all increasingly risky. Anyway, I have a ton of additional wildfire data, tables, and information in a story we published on Tuesday. The headline of that story is, started late and went long. Even in quieter season, wildfire impact felt across Oregon. So the thing that that headline speaks to is actually our next topic, which is Oregon's summer climate. That's another topic that definitely wasn't part of my job 10 years ago, but is now pretty front and center. So lately, Oregon has been seeing some really dramatic swings in the weather. The wildfire season started late and ski season went long because we had that abnormally wet and cold spring. I skied all the way into May and it stayed cool and wet pretty much through June. Historically, that was pretty normal. The old adage was that summer didn't start in Oregon until the 4th of July. So wildfire season got started late. But when summer hit this year, it hit hard. The switch got flipped from cool to extremely hot very quickly. 
And so from July through September this year, so kind of during the peak of summer, we had the hottest period on record for the entire state. So again, July through September, the hottest ever recorded across the entire state of Oregon. And that record heat continued into October in most places. We didn't have the extreme highs, the 117 degree days that we recorded in 2021, but statewide, it was actually hotter this summer. And then you, and you saw that with just the sheer number of days in the 90s, in the summer, in the 80s during autumn. In fact, one thing Oregon State climatologist Larry O'Neill pointed out is that Oregon just doesn't have cool summers anymore. Oregon has not had a cooler than normal summer by 20th century standards since 1993. We came pretty close in 2011, but that's it. Otherwise, it's it's nothing but just hot summer after hot summer. I, the warming trend has gone on for such a long time now that people are basically losing memory of how cold it used to be in Oregon. So in addition to being hot, it was also an exceptionally dry summer, the driest on record in Eugene. Again, and these records go back to the 1890s. So given all that, and the fact that we had more lightning strikes than recent years in the Cascades, I think it is worth pointing out that Oregon firefighters did a pretty amazing job this year. State and federal firefighters kept 96% of wildfires smaller than 10 acres. The wet spring definitely played a role in that, but firefighters hit it hard this year and gave us a pretty smoke-free summer. And that did come at a cost. Aggressively putting out every fire in remote locations is one of the most dangerous jobs you can have. And this year, two firefighters died in action and four firefighters have died on Oregon fire since 2020. So all the credit that goes to firefighters is well-deserved because they are literally putting their lives on the line. Overall though, in looking back at the wildfire and climate summer, I thought O'Neill summed it up pretty well when he said, with a combination of drought, lightning activity, and east winds, the season we had wasn't the worst possible outcome. Okay, so the next big piece of news this year, and like wildfires, this has also been a trend, has been the rise in the number of people in Oregon's outdoors. The state has seen a growing number of people outside since around 2013, but during the pandemic, we absolutely shattered those records. And since then, people have not stopped going to parks, national forests, wilderness areas. So this summer, the state didn't see like another jump upward but more of a leveling off at that record high level. So that meant, just like last year, campsites were almost universally packed in popular places, trails were busy, and everything from beaches to fishing to stand-up paddleboarding has never been more popular. One thing that was different about this year, and was definitely a trend that we saw in a lot of different places, was that campers and people outdoors were in much worse moods. We reported a pretty wild story about people actually getting into fights over campsites and resorting to campsite piracy in some extreme examples, like people were stealing reserved campsites and claiming them for themselves in a few isolated incidents. But in most cases, it came out as people just being increasingly rude or hostile to park rangers and volunteers tasked with keeping order in these increasingly busy campgrounds. 
So you saw this play out, you know, earlier this year, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department reported assaults and harassment of rangers had increased to the point that the agency was going to seek legislation this year to give rangers added protection and increase the penalty for attacking them. And that was reflected from the people that we talked about. So here's a pair of quotes from people that work outdoors. So here's one from Deschutes National Forest Recreation Manager, Dennis Benson. So he said, traditionally, about 1% of our visitors really struggle with complying with the rules and regulations. Now it's more like 10% of the population. And here's another quote from Oregon State Parks Associate Director, Chris Havel. And what he said was, what stands out is that we're seeing an increase in situations where people not only disagree with our rangers, but disagree in ways that include verbally attacking them, threatening physical violence, and sometimes following through on those threats. So yeah, that's not the best trend of this year. So changing gears, but only just a little here, this was really the year of the permit. Now, all those people outdoors has meant agencies are increasingly turning toward permits to reduce impact on trails and parking areas by just reducing the number of people that are allowed there. Permits that try to reduce numbers have been growing for a while, but this year we definitely hit another high. So this summer, a bunch of new permits came online or stayed in place. We have the second year of the expansive permit system in the Central Cascade Wilderness Areas. So the Jefferson, the Sisters, and the Washington, and that that's not going anywhere. Uh, but it was also the first year of timed entry permit system for the Waterfall Corridor in the Columbia Gorge. It was the first year of timed entry permits for Lava River Cave outside Bend. And this winter, it'll be the first year for permits to enter the lights display at Shore Acres State Park on the Oregon coast. There's plenty of other examples of limited entry permits from Dog Mountain to the John Day River to the Rogue River, but I'm not going to list them all here. The point is permits abound, and I suspect in the future we are going to see more of them and not less. But in looking at the data, the thing that you can say about the permits is that they do their job pretty well. All the permits I mentioned will get tweaked a little, very likely, especially in the gorge, but pretty much all of them have achieved their goals in the main ways by just reducing the number of people. A pretty simple example from this year is Lava River Cave, which if you've never been, is a mile long, very cool underground lava tube that you can hike into just outside of Bend. So in the past few years, people were regularly sitting in their cars in line for 30 minutes to even an hour before they were let into the parking lot because they had to fit in the parking lot and then could go into the cave. That led to a lot of frustration, a lot of anger, since really who wants to sit in their car for, you know, almost an hour. So they added this new timed entry permit system, meaning you had to buy a permit for a time slot and then arrive at that time. And by doing that, it spread people out and almost overnight, that line of cars disappeared. And the interesting thing is, by doing that, more people were able to actually get in and see the cave. Now, a lot of people have problems with the permit systems, and for good reason, we've reported on a lot of them. It favors wealthier people with good internet access and the ability to take time off work, for sure. It favors young people who know how to use complex computer websites at the expense of older populations. And philosophically, it does turn public land into restricted land. 
But at this point, I'd expect to see more and not less again, because these permits are really the only thing that seems to work effectively when dealing with these very overcrowded, but beautiful, fragile, and important places. All right, so on something of a happier note, this summer brought about the long-awaited reopening of most of the land burned in the 2020 Labor Day fires. Not all of it, mind you, and access is still pretty sketchy in a lot of places, but overall, those huge swaths of land that were kept closed for almost two years finally reopened late this summer. That meant people could return to places like Jefferson Park, the Clackamas River Canyon, and even the Opal Creek Wilderness, if you could find a way to access it. A bunch of the roads did remain closed, including the main route into the aforementioned Opal Creek, but at least for now, you can go to most of these places, and what you'll find there varies a lot because even major fires, like the Labor Day fires, burn in different ways in different places. As a good example, I wanted to highlight two hikes where you can see a distinct difference in burn severity and get two of the best contrasting views of the impact of the Labor Day fires. So for that, my two picks would definitely be Rocky Top Trail and Stallman Point Trail. Now, they're both in the San Am Canyon area. They were both impacted by the Lion's Head Beachy Creek fires, but the fire scars of the two trails and what they travel through and what they overlook is pretty different. So Rocky Top Trail, which is just off Highway 22 between Gates and Detroit, heads up to a high point in the middle of where the Beachy Creek fire burned hottest. And the view from the top and the trip going over there is pretty stark. It looks like a wasteland. The trees were burned down to like matchsticks. It overlooks the Opal Creek Valley, which is really sobering because there is almost nothing left of that giant old growth forest. It's as sobering a hike as you could ever hope to take. The Stallman Point Trail, which climbs above Detroit Lake, is a much different experience. It was burned in the Lion's Head Fire, but at a much lower severity. So lots of trees are burned along the base, but clearly are still alive. The green canopy is mostly intact. The burn was mostly along the ground, and ground fire is what you want because it kind of cleans up the clutter, the fuel that's built up there. At the top, the view looks out over the San Am Canyon, kind of up the North San Am River. And you could definitely see more of a mosaic of burn, you know, kind of a mixture of brown here, green there. And it just looks a lot healthier than it does when you're looking from the view at Rocky Top. Lesson here being that all fire is different. Fire scars are different. And this is a this is a great place to go out and experience that different in fires because not all wildfires are created equal. In fact, each wildfire is very different in terms of its impact on the forest. Okay, up next, I'm going to hit you with a quick grab bag of interesting headlines from the summer and stories to maybe watch for going forward. So getting back on the wildfire topic just a little we reported this past summer that state and federal agencies still haven't released investigation reports into the causes of the Labor Day fires, which are now two years old. So that means that the officials have not released the report saying, here's what happened, here's how it spread, here's who's to blame. That has become a 
pretty big problem given that there is a very large class action lawsuit trial that is going to begin this coming spring against Pacific Power, which is blamed for igniting some of these fires. But we still don't have like the official documentation of what happened. So that's going to be something to watch for sure going forward. Another wildfire related topic that we reported on is a lawsuit that is targeting the use of fire retardant. So that's the red stuff you see coming out of airplanes, you know, especially on television news, the airplane flies across, drops a big stream of red stuff. That's retardant. So this lawsuit basically argues that retardant doesn't work at all in slowing wildland fires. And in fact, because it's toxic itself, it actually kills fish when it accidentally gets dropped into water. So realistically, they're saying it's not worth using it. It doesn't do anything. It's not helpful. Another, force, another fire-based story I reported out pretty recently was that went national and it was about a prescribed fire that was undertaken by the U.S. Forest Service that got out of hand in Grant County and actually led to the arrest of the burn boss on the fire, meaning the guy managing it. And that's a Forest Service employee. So this is pretty wild because it became a national story because it illustrates this tension between the federal government, which manages over half the land in Oregon, and the people who actually live in the town surrounded by that land, it's often a contentious relationship because, you know, the city and county people want to do one thing. The federal government says wants to do another. And there's that conflict there. But this is the first time a burn boss, like somebody trying to work on federal land, has ever been arrested for the fire spreading off there and burning private land. So that's going to be one that's complex and worth checking out and following to see what happens. Jumping out of fires for a little bit, we had a good story by our outdoors intern, Mackenzie Elliott, about how a fast-growing invasive waterweed has basically overtaken Devil's Lake out in Lincoln City. This is a big problem for the homeowners on the lake, fish in the lake, wildlife around the lake, people that want to go there for recreation. It's just made boating, fishing, just about everything pretty close to impossible. But the reason the waterweed is taking over and what can be done about it is anything but simple. And it's a complex story. And I recommend checking it out because it's probably not what you think. And you can find that at statesmanjournal.com. In other environmental news, in terms of things you might consider watching, uh, there's legislation in Congress um, that's called the River Democracy Act. And that would add 4,700 miles of Oregon streams to the National Wild and Scenic Recreation System. It's been something Oregon Senators Ron Wyden and Jeff Merkley have been pushing for a few years as a way to protect even more river miles, drinking water, and fish. There's also legislation aimed at a compromise that would bring wilderness protection to the Oahe River Canyonlands in extreme eastern Oregon. It's another Wyden bill, and this one is called the Malheur Community Empowerment for the Oahe Act. <laughs> The bill has sought to strike a balance between giving the area some wilderness and recreation lands protection while still allowing grazing and ranching to take place in that area because that's sort of been the fight out there. This has been something that's been going on for, you know, a decade for sure, even longer. But this is the largest piece of, you know, unprotected land in Oregon. And it's definitely a place cons conservationists have spotlighted to add wilderness to for a long time. So we'll see if that gets any closer to happening. Okay, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, I'm going to tell one more story. This one about a hike, a plane crash, and a reality star from the show Diesel Brothers. That's when we return. 
I'm Sarah Gafori with American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. I moved to Oregon because of my love for the outdoors. It also inspired me to go to law school and pursue a career in environmental law. At AFRC, I have the pleasure of advocating for science-based forest management throughout the West. Protecting our public lands helps achieve important conservation goals, including clean air, clean water, and robust wildlife habitat. It also helps provide renewable, climate-friendly wood products that we all depend on. We strongly believe that active management of our public lands is the right thing to do for the environment, for the economy, and for our future. Learn more about AFRC at amforest.org. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. The last two years have been tough on the beaches and trails of the Tillamook Coast. With more people flocking to the area in search of outdoor activities comes a spike in the appearance of trash along roads, trails, and beaches. Be part of the solution and make a point at helping curb this problem. Dispose of your trash in designated receptacles and practice leave no trace visitation. Make it a habit to bring a trash bag along in your hike or beach walk and pick up at least three pieces of trash along your way. It may seem like a drop in the bucket, but every little bit makes a difference. Learn more about how you can help by visiting www.tillamookcoast.com and downloading the Tillamook Coast Pledge. You can help preserve the legacy of beautiful trails and beaches for generations to come. All right, so this last week, one of the strangest and saddest stories that I've ever reported out came to kind of an unexpected conclusion. So this story involves a hike, a plane crash in the Mount Jefferson wilderness, and YouTube and reality star Heavy D from the show Diesel Brothers. So here's what happened from my end. So first off, I went on a trip that I'd wanted to do for a long time, and that was backpack into Carl Lake and climb South Cindercone in the Mount Jefferson wilderness. So that's what I did. Started from the Cabot Lake Trailhead in September, hiked in about five miles, made camp at Carl Lake, which is a beautiful place to backpack into during the autumn, did some fishing, and then I planned to climb South Cindercone the next day. So I woke up early the next morning and headed up from Carl Lake to the Pacific Crest Trail, aiming to reach the uh, about 6,700 foot summit pretty early that morning. But when I came into view of South Cinder and the route up, I noticed something odd on the side of the mountain. As I hiked up the peak, it became clear there was a plane wreck on the side of the mountain. Now, I figured it was an old wreck at first, although that seemed odd since I'd never heard of anything like that up there before. But as I got closer, it became clear that this was not an old wreck, but a pretty new site of a plane crash. Now, I had no clue it was there, no real idea of what was going on. I kind of looked around the site, took a few pictures, and then headed up to the summit. So from the summit, I had cell service, and with a few Google searches, I was able to find some brief news reports about a plane crash in the Jefferson Wilderness that had killed a 67-year-old man from Washington named Wayne Wirt. The crash was just about a week before I got there. Search and rescue had been up there to the site to kind of assess 
and confirm the crash, but that was about it. I climbed down from the mountain and headed back to camp, but I couldn't shake questions about what was going on up there and what was going to happen. When I got back home, I came across a GoFundMe account from Wayne's family. It gave some information about who he was, apparently a guy who designed movie sets in Hollywood for a lot of his life and who loved flying. But the page also said that the family was struggling because it apparently fell to them to remove the plane from the side of the mountain. I got in touch with the family to find out a little bit more, and they said they were trying to contract with a helicopter company to remove the wreck. Because it was in such a remote area where you're not allowed to drive any vehicle, it would be an expensive and complex operation, costing around $50,000. And the family was having trouble paying that expense because most of their funds were set up in Wayne's name, and to access them, they needed a death certificate. But they couldn't get that until his body came down from the mountain. So I wrote a story about that crash and the family having to pay for it. The story generated a lot of interest and apparently made its way to a guy named Heavy D, who is famous for his work with big trucks, helicopters, and heavy machinery on the show Diesel Brothers. He offered to remove the wreck free of charge, and ironically, the family, and including Wayne, were big fans of his already. So they did the removal and filmed the entire thing. Last Sunday, the episode was posted. It's really good, actually. It's a nice homage to the pilot and his family while illustrating how a job like this gets done. It also gets into the value of the Wilderness Act and the need to get permits to protect wilderness values when you're doing a job like this. So it's worth to watch it, and you can find the episode on the Heavy D Sparks YouTube channel. It was definitely a story that went in an unexpected direction, but it was nice to play a small part in a resolution like this. All right, well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. For our environment, for our economy, and for the future, learn more at amforests.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.